Chop Talk is brought to you by the Kosho School of Karate's premium martial arts training equipment. Frustrated with the low quality of the big manufacturers, the hassle and expense of custom-made equipment, or the months-long delivery times offered by the Japanese brands, if your order ever arrives at all, Kosho offers Makiwara, iron sandals, specialty punching bags, and other premium martial arts training equipment, all at great prices and great delivery times. Kosho equipment is guaranteed to be high quality and heavy duty, exactly what serious traditional martial artists demand. Contact the Kosho School of Karate for more information. Go to www.koshoequip.com or email koshoschoolofkarate at gmail.com. Kosho, premium martial arts training equipment for the serious martial artist. Hello and welcome back to Chop Talk. I'm your host, Nate England. Wherever you listen to the show, please write a review and give us a five-star rating. Check out photos and links from this week's show on the Chop Talk Facebook page and share this podcast with everyone at your dojo. This week, Andrew Clark, another member of the Kosho School of Karate here in Cincinnati, joins us to discuss his experiences living in Japan and training in Okinawan and Japanese sumo. Andy moved to Japan in 2004 to teach English on the tiny island of Kitadaitojima, which is a few hundred miles east of Okinawa. That makes it exactly in the middle of nowhere. While living on Kitadaito, Andy had the unique opportunity to train in both Kakuriki, or Okinawan sumo, and Edo sumo, which is the Japanese sumo that most of you are familiar with. Okinawan sumo is also sometimes known as Tegumi and Muto and it has been a popular grappling art in Okinawa for hundreds of years. In fact, some people, including Shoshin Nagamini, thought that Okinawan sumo was the original martial art of Okinawa, and then it later developed into tei and ultimately karate. At the start of the show, Andy tells us how he arrived in Japan and his first impressions of his new home. He then talks about how he got involved with the Kitadaito sumo team and explains the differences between Okinawan sumo and Edo sumo. At the end of the show, he gets into some of the challenges he faced during his training and the best way to see Okinawan sumo for yourself. If you have any questions for Andy Clark, please reach out through the Chop Talk Facebook page or send an email to choptalkwithnateengland at gmail.com and I'll forward them along. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. In today's episode, we have another one of the members of the Kosho School of Karate, uh, Andy Clark. How are you doing, Andy? Doing well, Nate. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. I've got my AirPods in. I'm going to close the window because it can get noisy here in Clifton. We live on Martin Luther King Space. There's like a lot of loud traffic in the background. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. That reminds me. Let me unplug my refrigerator. <laughs> okay. You still there? Yeah. Yeah. My, my refrigerator always kicks in right when... People are saying the most interesting things, so I, I always unplug it. Ah, uh, <laughs> funny. Yeah, we're, we're blessed with uh, a quiet refrigerator, but a noisy road. And, yeah, because uh, I think actually the refrigerator is probably uh, worse than the noisy road when it gets noisy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the the problem was once I did one of these uh, chop talk episodes with my refrigerator unplugged, and I needed to hit the road to go do, go on a go to a <laughs> seminar right afterwards. Didn't plug it back in. 
Oh, no. <laughs> you good to throw everything out? Uh, yeah, I saved a few things, but for the most part, it was it was uh, it was a loss. You know, we have quite a few interesting people at the dojo, and uh, our uh, a little quarantine here has given me a, a good kick in the butt to interview some of you guys. And um, one of the big reasons I wanted to talk to you is you and I were actually in Okinawa at about the same time, if not exactly the same time. Yeah. And also, while you were there, you got to study Okinawan sumo. Mm -hmm. And that's something I never got to do while I was over there. So can you start off by telling us how how you got to Japan in the first place? So um, with with going over to Japan, uh, I uh, I actually lost a bet. And um, (laughs) I really didn't have any interest in Japan. Uh, I was a senior in college, and I lost a bet with a friend. And the penalty for that bet was to have to go abroad for the next year. Uh, so I was, it was, I wow. think, November 2004, and here I am searching for teaching abroad positions. I had an English degree, so I figured I could find something in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't find anything in Europe. Uh, but I did find the JET program, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a Japan exchange and teaching program. Well, I applied through that. It's a pretty hard program to get into, but... Somehow I got in, hmm. and uh, they play. And and I remember filling out the form to get like to apply, and, and they said, oh, "Okay, do you have any preference on location?" I said, "NA, like no, no preference whatsoever." So when I got my uh, like you know, hey, you're in letter, uh, I was reading through it, and it says you're going to be placed at Kitadaito Island in Okinawa. And just for your listeners, Kitadaito is the easternmost island in the prefecture. It's 360 kilometers east of mainland Okinawa. <laughs> and you can get there by either a dual prop plane once a day or a 16-hour overnight ferry every three days. Okay, uh, so, so really, really isolated. So yeah, you got sent to Okinawa, but it's not even what most people think of Okinawa. It wasn't the island of Okinawa. You were in Okinawan Prefecture and a tiny island in that. That is in the middle of nowhere. Correct. Yeah. And the has an interesting history. Before 1912, it wasn't even inhabited. I think it was called the Borodino Islands. Uh, but uh, Japanese kind of colonists or frontier colonists took it, uh, basically inhabited it in 1912. Um, and so a real big theme on the island is frontier spirit. And that's where kind of the islands embrace of Okinawan sumo, which is Kakariki, and Edo Sumo comes from. And we'll talk more about that down the road, but right. like the native inhabitants of the island aren't even from Okinawa. They're from mainland Japan. Um, wow. But a lot of Okinawans have moved to the island over the, or the islands over the years. So it's this weird blend. Like they have a lot of cultural things that you won't find anywhere else in Okinawa. Like they're one of two islands that has uh, a portable shrine as opposed to like a lot of the traditions they have on mainland Okinawa, it's this weird blend of mainland Japan and huh. Okinawa culture. That's really interesting. And, and you know, Okinawa and all the different islands have been in, inhabited for hundreds of years, the Ryukyu Kingdom. But it's it's so interesting that there's this one little rock out there that, that wasn't at all. And it's in, you know, modern times, you know, 1912. That's uh, just barely a hundred, little under 100 years ago that, that people started getting there. Um, yeah. Now, let me ask you about the JET program. So I I applied for the JET program also, and, and I'm trying to remember the year. It, it must have been it must have been around two thousand and four. 
maybe it was 2005. Mm. And, uh, you know, because I was interested in living abroad. You know, it was, I'll tell you what, it was 2005 because I had already finished grad school. And it was after grad school. Ah. So I... Ah. So I applied for this, and I went to this giant meeting and seminar to talk all about it. And I applied and got through the application. And eventually, they called and and uh, you know offered me the job. But but when I wanted to go to Okinawa specifically, that's where I wanted to go. And wow. and when they offered it to me, said, "Okay, can you request? Can I request where I would like to be?" And they said, "You can request." But we will send you wherever we want. I'm like, okay. I'm like, okay. Um, you know, you know. W- will you take it into consideration? No. You will be. You can request anything, but you will be sent where where you are told. And it's like, <laughs> and, so, and so I said, uh, thanks, but no thanks for the job offer, guys. You know, I'll, I'll get there my own way. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's interesting because usually like, I think, uh, I can totally see him saying that. Uh, um, but it's interesting because I, I felt like a lot of the jets that I met, most of them were really obsessed with mainland Japan. So yeah. I, I think you thought you might've had a good shot to get in because there weren't at least the Okinawa jets that I met. Most were like, yeah, I put no press into it. And here's where I am. <laughs> you know? but, but I can totally see that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, so what, how long did you, sign up for was it it was a a one-year minimum but did you go over for uh, that minimum or did you expect to stay longer well that is a very interesting point especially on the island i was at because before i had gotten to this island there were several alts before me and most maybe lasted a year and the reason for this was the extreme isolation and even in 2005 they only had internet at the community center and I think at the school. So if you want to check the internet or go check the email, you had to go to the school or go to the community center. You couldn't get it at your apartment. Um, and, and as the only foreigner on the island, I mean, you were extremely isolated. So uh, if you didn't pass the time well and you didn't try to make, get involved with the community, I could see how it can be very, very challenging. Oh, yeah. So uh, most of the people before me only did one year. Uh, but I ended up doing two. Uh, mainly because of sumo and uh, because of the sumo community there, they really embraced me and it made the years kind of fly by. Yeah. Um, but then in year two, I met my wife and year two became year three, became year four, became year five, not in the jet program. I left the jet program after the second year, uh-huh. but uh, eight years, two cats and a wife later, I came back to the U S <laughs> <laughs> and you, you, you brought the Okinawan cats with you. I did. And they're still here, still chilling. Uh, and uh, hopefully they'll be with us for a couple more years yet. Okay, so now how many people were on this island approximately? When I was there, there were 500 people, and 100 of them were the kids. Wow. And so uh, very small. And then there, so I should clarify that Kita Daito Island is part of the Daito Island chain. There are technically three islands in them. Hmm. So Kita Daito is like the smallest populated one. You have Manami Daito, which is a southern island. And then you have Oki Daito, which what I heard from the islanders was that was used for like the Japan Air Self-Defense Force as like a target practice, like a bombing run area. So like no one lived there and no one was allowed to go there ever. Um, so it was just uh, Kita Daito and Manami Daito. Um, and Manami Daito had 1,000 or 1,500 people and we had 500. Wow. 
Now, were you so you were living there for all this time? But were you? I mean, were you only on that island? Did you get over to the mainland or or Minami Daito? You know, spread your wings a little bit. So when when we had our sumo tournaments and things like that, we would travel to like Minami Daito for sumo and stuff. But here's the crazy thing: so on this island, living expenses were extremely cheap, extremely cheap. Uh, my my rent at the time was fifty dollars, and I got paid a pretty standard salary. And what would happen is you'd sit on this money, but you're 22 years old, so you wouldn't think to save it or do anything wise with it. Right. Uh, and I would go to the mainland like once a month to visit my friends, the other ALPs on the other outer islands, because we had a completely different experience in the mainland, Okinawan. Sure. Yeah, so they all kind of hung out with each other. They didn't really get to know that. But we were all like very, very immersed. So we were the, like, we could only empathize with each other. Like, you know, the, the, the mainland just as much as I like them, they, they could, they just physically couldn't comprehend the, the level of isolation. So right. there were two or three other ALTs I became very close with. One was on Tokushiki Island, the other one was on Iheya. Uh, and uh, we would all get together approximately once a month uh, on the mainland and, and go on a bit of a, a, bi- uh, a, a, a binge uh, mm. session of drinking and partying, having fun, and then return to our islands for the next month and, and, and knock it out. Wow. So... So I guess there there is a big difference between even the people that were on and when you say mainland you you don't mean mainland Japan that's you know when when I was on Okinawa and we said mainland we're talking about you know Tokyo Kyoto that mainland when you say mainland you mean mainland Okinawa Okinawa yeah and I I mean I I saw it too so I was there you know, I didn't start as an English teacher. I got my English teacher after being there for, I don't know, a year or six months or whatever it was. But mm-hmm. it, it was, there were some of the international population. It was easy for them to go to the, um, you know, the international bar. Uh, at the, I think at the time it was either rehab or, um, uh, <laughs> or, or Paul and Mike's or, and there could be a little community where, you could sort of self-isolate. Um, I was outside yeah. of that because I was there doing martial arts with a bunch of, you know, old Okinawan men. But there was definitely that possibility if you were an English teacher just hanging out with other foreigners and English teachers. Fun fact, the Paul and Paul and Mike introduced me to my wife. So uh, that's wow. uh, three degrees of separation. Yeah, three degrees of separation. That's an entirely separate story. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and speaking of Pauls, uh, Okinawa is still full of Pauls. Uh, one half of every of all the foreigners you meet in Okinawa are named Paul. Um, <laughs> and it, in in December, I went to Okinawa with our dojo member Paul Tarvin, and so <laughs> there was one more. And so I'm like, all right, Paul, uh, you know, we'll have to figure out which Paul you're going to be because we ran into, you know, Scottish Paul. And I think we, uh, we were trying to find Canadian Paul and, uh, which, oh, we had American Paul. And so, um, Paul Tarvin from our dojo became Ohio Paul. Ah, nice. Speaking of now Caps, one's jumping up on me right now. I got Yeah, here in a minute. So when you went over there, you you said you went over on a bet. Now I'm I'm very curious about this bet, 
and I'm also apprehensive. I don't know if I should ask more about the details of the, well, this bed or not. I'm always, I don't really get too much of the details because as I've matured and gotten older, I don't, uh, it doesn't really matter so much. But at the time, I was really, really, very political. And uh, it was about who won the 2004 election. Um, <laughs> but I usually, yeah, but I, I usually don't like, I've chilled out a lot since then, so it doesn't really, and I don't, and I don't like saying, because whatever side of the fence you are, it's going to change your perceptions of me. So I don't, I don't say who it was for or against. Okay. But uh, I lost it for sure. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah. So you hadn't really studied Jap- the Japanese language, the Japanese culture at all when you went over, had you? Zero. Nothing. And I remember specifically signing up for the JET program because they said, yeah, you don't need any Japanese. No, you can just, just speak English. It's fine. And I remember the riding in the back of the pickup truck who picked me up at the airport in uh, Naito, and here I am, like the, the enormity of the situation I'm in was like sinking. I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing here? I'm the only one who speaks English. Even our English teacher at the time didn't speak English. I'm like, oh no. So, so there was nobody else on this island that you could really communicate with? Not really, but there was a group of Filipinos uh, that were brought over on a farming exchange scholarship. Uh, and uh, occasionally we would uh, we would hang out, but they were never there for very long. They might be there for a couple months, and then uh, they're on their exchange, and they learn about sugarcane harvests on, on Kitadaito, and then they would move on. Um, so that was maybe the only real English exposure I had. But I did have, um, there was, a, I would say that a couple members of the sumo community really took me in on the island, but then also there was a vice principal on the island, uh, who he left his family on the mainland of Okinawa to be on this island and to, for his job because there's a, like a teacher rotation that happens every three years. And uh, so I guess he missed his family. He spoke pretty good English. So he kind of quasi adopted me during that time. I spent a lot of time with Kyoto Sensei. We're still very good friends. Okay. All right. So, so then how did you get involved? I mean, you had to be involved in the community, like you said before. Otherwise, you're going to sit in your $50 a month apartment and, and go nuts. So, so yeah. was this was the sumo what got you out? How, how did you get involved in that? So um, for sumo, um, I should preface that you know this island's culture is, re- well, I would almost say heavily, heavily dependent around sumo. For example, there are three big, big festivals in the fall, and all of them are preceded by a day long sumo tournament where every child, boy or girl, has to participate up to grade six. And then the middle school kids, they all, all the boys do it from there. And then after the middle school, because there's no high school on the island, all of the able-bodied men are supposed to do it. Wow. Uh, and so, again, it goes back to that frontier spirit and, and kind of paying, paying homage to the, to the Japanese roots and, and all, all of this stuff. So, uh, you know, I get to the island, and uh, my boss at the, port, at the Board of Education was a guy named Shiroma Fong. And he was a very kind guy, but he... Uh, was a very much a wrestler. You could tell, big guy, big strong guy. And uh, we get there, and uh, I don't think I was on the island very, very long before he starts saying, okay, well, you're going to come to sumo practice, right? You're going to come join our sumo team, right? Um, and, and I kind of had, had, had kind of written it off. I said, no, no, not my style. I'm not, I'm not a martial artist. Um, there are a lot of martial artists in Okinawa. I don't have to be one of them. You know, I, I'm here to, to you know, learn about the culture and to teach and, and do that. Right. Um, and so what Shiroma-san did 
was he started inviting me to his office after work the, the exact same times as the sumo practice uh, because I wouldn't join the sumo team, and we would have check-ins. And these check-ins would be easily 30, 40, 50 minutes of sitting across from each other on these two little leather couches, and he would ask me, like, how are you doing today? And I'd say, oh, I'm doing fine. Say, how do you like our weather? Yeah, I like your weather. Do you like our food? Yeah, I like your food. And this would go on for, for you know, I would like to say hours. It probably wasn't actually hours, but it felt like hours. Yeah. And then it became very clear to me that the message was, hey, you can either join our sumo team or you can come to these meetings. <laughs> and, uh, and, and eventually I decided, okay, hey, I'm doing sumo. I mean, this has got to be better than, than what I'm facing right now. Right. Uh, and so I joined the sumo team, yeah. So is that technically blackmail or just um, Japanese encouragement? Or is there a difference? Japanese <laughs> uh, encouragement for sure. Um, and, and since I, I would think in the sense of the long term, since I benefited from it, and I, and I do have fond memories of it now, I don't think it counts as blackmail. But if I didn't, maybe it would have. <laughs> right. This is Mike Tarvin of Tarvin Plumbing Company. You may have heard me answering questions as a plumbing expert on The Gary Sullivan Show over the years. I'm here today to make you aware of our company. We perform plumbing repairs of all types. We've been in business since 1907 through five generations of family members. That's 109 years of providing top quality workmanship and outstanding service. If you're having issues with leaks, stoppages, water heaters, fixtures, or piping, we're here to help. Spring rains may be taking a toll on your sump pump. To help out, ask us about our summer sump pump special. We can inspect the existing pump and replace it if necessary for a special summer price. We can also inspect or add a battery backup and other devices for extra security to keep you high and dry. We offer you peace of mind for your plumbing system with reliable, trustworthy service backed by years of experience. Tarvin Plumbing is a Cincinnati company with an appreciation of the wide range of plumbing challenges this city offers. So if you or someone you know has a need for plumbing repairs of any type, please think of us at Tarvin Plumbing. You can reach us at tarvinplumbing.com. That's tarvinplumbing.com. Thank you. I'm, I'm curious about just how, how popular sumo was on, on this island. Now, um, you know, be, before this, there is not that much information out on Okinawan sumo. Uh, I think everybody's familiar with regular old Japanese sumo, um, you know, uh, but um, there's not that inf- much information out on Okinawan sumo. In fact, I was trying to research the topic. And the best thing, if not the only thing I could find, was um, in Shoshin Nagamini's book, uh, not his first book, but his book, Tales of Okinawa's Great Masters. He has a a section that was uh, a really good section on this book about the history of Okinawa and sumo and some of the more popular people and some of the different rules and things. Uh, So I would encourage anybody who wants to read about it, I I think you're going to need to get, get this book. Um, but on the island that you were on with this mix of mainland Japanese people and Okinawan people, what kicked this off? Was it the mainlanders? Was it just a fluke that this got this popular on this island? What was it? So what I should say also, part of the reason why a lot of people don't know about Kakariki is that at least in 2005 and at that time, it was pretty much relegated to the outer islands. Mm. It really wasn't on the mainland. It's almost kind of like a very um, rural kind of sport. It's like akin to like maybe uh, Texas football. 
Uh, and so, like, a lot of the teams that we would play against would all be other outer islands. We wouldn't, like, you wouldn't go to mainland Okinawa and, 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 and wrestle one of the, a team that had mainland Okinawa. I'm sure they had teams, but, like, we would wrestle Kumejima, we would wrestle Manami Daito. So I think that's part of the reason why it's not as pronounced. Um, and I think the second reason, like, kind of speaking to what maybe kicked it off, I believe that really Edo Sumo, uh, for a time, was king. Edo is the traditional Japanese sumo that we all know. Um, but Edo Sumo is dangerous. Like, people can get hurt in Edo Sumo. We'll talk about that mm-hmm. down the road a little bit. Uh, Kakariki, I would always describe it as more like a martial game, not a martial art. It was a form of sumo where really no one could get like really hurt because you're tied in with someone. So if you're going to fall, you're going to fall with them. It's very hard to fall in a way that someone's going to snap something or break something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what enabled the, the community to keep doing some sumo in a way that doesn't hurt them, that didn't, that didn't you know, result in a bunch of injuries. Because again, small island, not a whole lot of uh, opportunity to fix those injuries if you had right. a bad one. Right. So what was this training like? You know, uh, it was not like anything I imagined it would be at all. Um, yeah, at our dojo, we do a lot of calisthenics and a lot of technique training and things like that. Mm-hmm. When, when we joined, when I joined the sumo, I can remember rolling up on the first day outside. So you're in the hot. Usually like when the sun was setting is when we would meet, so it wouldn't be that hot. But still, you recall Okinawa, when you're working out outside, yeah. it's like training in hot jelly. Yeah. It's, it's no, no fun. And uh, basically, you would just wrestle. I mean, it would, I guess the, the way to think about it is it would be like, hey, if we want to get better fighters, we're just going to spar for an hour, and then, then we'll just learn how to be better fighters. Okay. Uh, and that, I think, was really, was not really, there wasn't a whole lot of house things. We did some. We did a lot of squats. Um, but outside of that, it was just wrestled until you couldn't wrestle anymore. This would be two or three hours of people taking turns wrestling, and, uh, and then afterwards, drinking, a lot of drinking. <laughs> That's always a yeah. important martial arts tradition. Now, now you said you were you yeah. were tied in with the other person. What do you mean exactly? So, in I'll send you some pictures of when I was wrestling mm. Kakariki Sequence. In Kakariki, people typically will just wear a, a, a judo gi top, and they'll even wear just like shorts. Uh, and the what you tie in, you don't have a regular like karate belt. Mm-hmm. You have a big long sash. It's like 20 feet long and they wrap it around you. Um, there's a, there's a way of tying it, which I, Lord knows, I can't remember how to do it now because it's been 15 years. But uh, the way you tie in is your right arm will go around the guy and up, up and over like from behind. So if you, I'm, I'm trying to describe it. It's hard to do it just hearing it, but it would be like, if you put your arm around the guy, you have the top of your, hand against the sole of their back and okay. you reach out from between their, their gi and their belt and then your left arm would be on the other side but it would come from the outside so you just rip the belt from the outside okay um and that was part of the part of the like rules where if you ever lost your grip or you one of your hands went out you would lose oh. so you had to always stay gripped in with, with the guy yeah so what? How do you win then? Is it is it like the um, what you called Edo sumo? That I think it's a typical sumo that that most people are familiar with, where the other guy, some mm-hmm. other part of his body hits the ground, or are there other uh, joint locks or sweeps or things involved? So in Kakariki, um, basically you win if you're able to pin the other guy, uh, and uh, usually it's by throwing them or tripping them. Uh, without without 
coming in loose from the belt. Um, you have to stay tight in the entire time. So a lot of the sweeps that we do at, at the at the school in practicing judo, mm-hmm. uh, we did those all the time. Uh, and it's kind of funny because now in, in hindsight, when I think about it and when I think about the instruction we get, like, oh, that's you know, pretty dangerous to hurt someone's knee. Uh, boy, we got none of that when we were doing it. They, w- they would just go for it. And mm-hmm. so it's a miracle that I still have my kneecaps. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the whole, the, the real art of it was you would be tidying and you'd just be watching their feet and you'd be watching their feet, their, their movement, the movement of their feet, because that would indicate what they're going to do next. Mm. And, and I never was as, I mean, the other guys on the team had been doing it since they were kids. So they were really, I mean, artists when it came down to this. I mean, they would watch very carefully. They'd do these little fake moves on each other. Um, sometimes you might get into a place where you're just side to side. You're trying to muscle the guy down. Um, I'm not doing it justice, but when I send you the pictures, you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay, okay, great. And you said you, you, yeah. when you throw the person, your hands have to stay in. So, you know, I'm used to my wrestling experience is is judo. So if you get thrown in judo, well, you better let go of that guy and do a great big slap and break fall. Otherwise, you're going to get hurt. But you're saying your your hands had to be stay inside that guy's belt even when you fell? Yeah, but- and I should actually explain this because you're trying to fall on top of them. Okay. So you'll have situations where you will sweep them and just fall on top of them. Situations where you'll be side by side, you'll try to pull them underneath you so you fall on top of them. Uh, that that's the goal. Okay. Okay, Andy. Yeah. So the the listeners don't know this, don't know you personally. Um, you're six yeah. two and um, a little bit over 150 pounds. Uh, how about 275? <laughs> okay. Um, having a guy your size land on top of you on the dirt outside cannot be fun. Um, it, were you just uh, – were you twice the size of everybody there? Well, let's let's back up a little bit because I think uh, for Kakariki, part of the reason why – I, felt, I always felt like it was a martial game, not the martial art. It's because there's really, it's hard to get momentum to really hurt someone. So when you're falling, because you're already probably in a good kiba and low to the ground, uh, it's not a tremendous fall. We're talking, you may be falling two or three feet. Okay, um, okay. That's number one. And number two, it's actually a short man's game because their center of gravity is lower. So they could get underneath me a lot faster and lift me up and throw me down before I'd even know what was happening. Um, Edo Sumo is a little bit different because you can get momentum in Edo Sumo. You can really push someone out. You can you can charge right into him. But with uh, with Takariki, you don't really have as much momentum. So it's really it's very hard to get injured in Takariki. Okay. At least in my experience. Okay. And so eventually, and, and I should mention, and I should mention, you're wrestling a big sand pit. So when you fall, you're falling on a relatively soft. Like, okay. Surface. So I, when when you say outside, I I'm picturing you know the outside areas. In, in Okinawa, it was that I saw at parks and things like that. It was more that hard-packed, muddy clay. But th- there was some give. You weren't on mats, but if you're on sand, that's much better than hard, hard-packed hard dirt. Yeah, and I should explain that. So the doyo or the ring for Edo Sumo is much smaller. And it's very compact, hard clay. But the doyo for Okinawa Sumo is a big, 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 big surface. Mm. I would say probably 20 feet across easily. I mean, big, big area to wrestle in. So you have a lot of leeway and pretty deep. And you can fall on that sand and be okay. 
Okay. And so eventually you said as you started the training, it was just wrestle, wrestle, wrestle and learn. But it did eventually they start getting into, okay, this is the best uh, way to sweep or this is the best way to do a, a hip throw? I not, not really. And part of the reason why is not because it's not, not that they didn't want to teach me or anything like that. There was a significant language barrier at that time. I didn't speak any Japanese or very little. Um, so I think that was one thing. It was kind of like, when I think back to it, it would be like if there was a small karate club with six or seven black belts who've been doing it all their life, and then what, there's one new guy who's a white belt, and so it's just like, okay, guys, just don't don't slow us down. Like, I think that's how it felt. Like, they, you know, you had the team there, yeah. and they were just like, oh, just, just really don't, don't get in our way, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of show you some things here and there. But it wasn't ever, like, mean or anything. It was just like, hey, we're going to wrestle. Um, yeah. I would tell you that the best teacher that I had for Okinawan Sumo was a guy named Toru, who's about my my age, and he had been on the island. He was the top uh, Okinawan wrestler on the island, and uh, when he would wrestle me, even though he had a lot of skill, I have a lot of size, so it's still hard for him to lift me up or to throw me, but so I think he saw a real challenge here, so he would, boy, if I ever beat him, he would pop right up and be like, Moi Kai, Moi Kai, do it again, do it again, mm. and he I mean, he would, he had a lot of pride. So if you beat him once, he wouldn't have to beat, he'd try to beat you like 10 times just to show you that you were wrong for beating him once. But <laughs> I think he really enjoyed the challenge, you know. Looking for a way to gain an edge on the competition? Want to give your body some much needed relief and relaxation? Try Medical Resort ATAC, Okinawa specialists in sports therapy and wellness care. ATAC offers customizable massage therapy. Try their oxygen chamber to increase metabolism, reduce fatigue, and promote faster recovery from injuries. Take their stretching course to increase flexibility and release muscle fatigue. ATAC also offers special courses in static and thermal therapy, foot therapy, and head therapy. Or try a session of ATAC's latest offering, acupuncture therapy, with their fully licensed acupuncture therapist. Want to find out more? ATAC is open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Stop into their center located at 1 2830 Oroku in Naha City, Okinawa. Call 098-859-1890 or visit them on the web at www.a-tac.net. That's www.a-tac.net. Staff is fluent in English, Portuguese, Spanish, and Japanese. While you were there, you were doing the kakariki or the Okinawan sumo. I, I've also I've also heard it called other things. Um, uh, hold on a second. As I I'm going to pull out my notes from the uh, from Nagamini's book uh, here. Um, I, I've also you know I've heard it called uh, tegumi, and uh, in in, Moto, in Nagamini's book he also called it uh, muto. Did you ever hear in either of those terms? No, I only I only heard it referred to as Kakariki. Okay, um, but with again, I mean, a lot of these Okinawan islands, some of them have their own distinct dialects. Yes, like if you went to Heia, they you could they have a completely different dialect of Hogan than they do on the mainland. So right. I wouldn't be surprised if they had multiple names at different locations. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised either. In you know, I heard that even in in places, you know, there's not that many people who speak the really speak fluently the Okinawan language anymore but um you know even Shuri compared to Naha which are completely within walking distance uh had different 
dialects. So yeah, the the outlying islands would have had different, actually different languages, even though everyone would just simplify it and call it Okinawan Hogan. Yeah, yeah. So at the same time you were doing this, were, were you also doing the the Japanese sumo? So um, the Japanese sumo came out once a year. It was always in the Nanboku Taitai, which was the Kita Daito versus Manawi Daito sports, big sports day festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at that, right around like February, March, like right just like around this time of year, you, they would start training for Edo Sumo. And um, I, I will never forget, because I was always kind of so-so at Capri. I was never very great at Capri, because again, big guy, if you have a rose center of gravity, you're going to be, you're going to be mopping the floor with me. Um, but with Edo Sumo, you know, size really does matter. Mm. And, uh, and so, um, and I should just, for your listeners, explain a couple of things, because I don't know, I think a lot of sumo or the perception of sumo is what we see in movies and TV. Yeah. It's actually a pretty intense sport. Uh, if, if it's so easy to lose in sumo. If you get pushed out of the doyo, you lose. If any part of your body other than the sole of your feet touches the ground, you lose. Um, and outside of a closed fist punch or an eye, stri- eye gouge or a strike to the groin, I think some hair pulling, anything's okay. So you can slap someone as hard as you want. You can push them as hard as you want. You can headbutt them if you want. Uh, I know. I've done it. Um, and so it, it, it can get pretty pretty nasty in there uh, when people are doing ADO. And, um, and the other thing is part of the reason why we see in the t- like on TV and maybe these huge, huge sumo wrestlers is there's no weight class in sumo. So if you join a sumo club, you might go up against a huge guy or a small guy. It doesn't matter. There's zero weight class involved. And so for the professional sports, they just, it's just the war of let's get the biggest guy in there and throw him in and, and just push the other guy out. Right. So, so with this one tournament a year, so you guys would start, start practicing and start, start training, training for this. Did you also compete against the other islands or was this, uh, only the in island. This, this has to be separate than the professional sumo ranks in Japan. I know there's different levels in Japan. There's, I guess, the guys that you could see on TV or the news once a year, but then there's a lot of lower levels. Was this tied into yeah. that at all at a lower level? I don't, I don't really know, but at the time, my Japanese wasn't great either, so it might have been or might not have been. Hmm. Um, I know that we, we wrestled uh, versus Minami Daito and Kumejima uh, for Edo, and you know, I was talking about Edo Sumo being a bit more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, my very first wrestling match, or the first tournament that I ever was in, um, you know, we, we had to pick five people to wrestle. And so we all drew, drew, drew straws on who would go when, and I got the second straw. Mm-hmm. And my friend Daisuke went ahead of me. Now, Daisuke was not, he was, he, was a, he was a local leader in the community, but he really wasn't a martial artist or a sport. Like, he loved playing sports, but not really like the wrestling. Like, he did it because his community asked him to, and he was relatively good, but he didn't necessarily, it wasn't like, it wasn't the love of his life, and you could tell. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so he gets in there, and uh, he's wrestling, and the guy who he's wrestling against has him up against the ring of the dojo. And um, he does this, twist throw i don't i can't even describe it uh daisuke was up against the the rope and he had his feet splayed out like a ballerina to keep from going over mm-hmm. and uh the guy had twisted him in a way that when he fell he popped his foot like off of his leg 
Uh, I mean, it, when, when I when I kid you not, I mean that we all heard the pop and we scared. Uh, as I'm looking at Daisuke, he's rolling around the ground and his foot had just like it was still like the skin was still there, but you could see it was like wildly disconnected from from the shit. Oh and uh, he had to be airlifted. And for the remaining two years I was on the island, he was in crutches. Uh, so, uh, and that was right before my first time wrestling ever. <laughs> As a sumo wrestling, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. What did I just get myself into? <laughs> wow. So how did you do in your first match? Uh, I won. I won. Nice. I beat the guy twice. And, um, and in fact, uh, you know, in that like tournament, I had won twice, but no one else on my team won back to back. Mm-hmm. So I got the MVP for the for our team in that tournament. So I got the MVP trophy, which to this day I think is pretty hysterical. I remember running up to get it, and the guy, the old guy, says, "Andrew, clock!" And and the little old guy giving me the award. He just couldn't make, you know, hide or you know, heads or tails <laughs> of what was going on. But here's a big foreigner getting this trophy. But I I still have it at my parents' house. We have it framed because we just think it's so funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. that, that's that's great. Um, so, were there whether in the Okinawan sumo or the the Edo sumo? Um, you know, I know that there's different ranks in the Edo, but again, this is professional. I know about the Yokozuna because I watched the WWF in the late '80s and early <laughs> '90s. Okay. Um, yeah, but and then obviously in karate, there's there's different ranks. But before, depending on the rank, started at different times between before the let's say 1920s on the early side, late 1940s or 50s on the late side for some styles, there were no ranks in karate. Were there different ranks and levels with either type of sumo? No, not really. Um... It was there, the only kind of rank that I recall, um, the only time we even looked at anything like that, on uh, one of the festivals I was, I was telling you about where we had the day-long sumo tournament, um, after that sumo tournament, there was supposed to be like a junior-senior match where all the junior-senior wrestlers would wrestle against the senior uh, wrestlers. Mm-hmm. And no one told me about this. Uh, so the junior members were supposed to lose, like all of them were supposed to lose to the senior to show like, you know, that, you know, that they respect their authority and their senior, uh, all this jazz. Well, the head coach of the team, he takes me as the person he's going to wrestle. Oh. I'm the guy who's most of the guy. And I had no idea. I had no idea that I was supposed to lose. So I didn't. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so there was, there was a lot of joking and, and a good natured ribbing about the dumb, the dumb foreigner who, did, who couldn't figure out to lose at the senior day. Um, but he seemed to have my, my coach, who I respect and look forward, look up to immensely. He, uh, he, he was such a good sport about it. And he was always just a very supportive kind of quiet guy who would, who would be there and help you out with, with anything you needed. Well, th- that's good that they had a, a, a good attitude about it because, and realized, hey, h- how the hell are you supposed to know this? Um, but being the only foreigner on that island, did you run into much discrimination at, at all? I mean, I had issues on the mainland. You know, I had a number of issues. One of the most mm-hmm. frustrating ones was getting a taxi. There's people that would not take you. Um, one guy didn't didn't realize that he was letting a foreigner in. He hit the automatic open button. I get, I'm halfway in the cab 
he look he finally looks back from his clipboard and goes, "Oh, Gaijin." Hits the closed door button at the same time he he hits the gas. I'm luckily I wasn't dragged down the street. He he peels out, runs a red light to get away from me. Um, oh no way! There's and there's other stuff that I saw. I saw there's something I run run into about once a week. But did you run into anything at all, or were you just one of the community? Well. I would say, um, for the most part, it's one of the community, but I definitely did run into uh, a, a situation I think would be relevant for, for the podcast, and I'll share that. But, you know, in the eight years I was in Japan, I found that like, the majority of times whenever there was like a, ra- like a racism thing, it was more just like complete ignorance. Hmm. Uh, it wasn't, it was never like, um, like, an, like I, I didn't att- well, most times it wasn't like a real intentional, like, hey, this, this foreigner, we, we really don't like them. Right. I was more just like, I, I'm so nervous, I can't speak English, or I don't know how to, how to interact with them. Yeah. Um, but the sumo example I'm going to give you is a little bit different. So, obviously, sumo is a very Japanese sport. There is actually a big kind of issue, even in recent years, because there are a lot of foreign wrestlers uh, competing in professional sumo, and they do right. very well. I, I know that there's a lot of Eastern Europeans and, and even Mongolians that are in the Jap- the professional ranks of the Japanese sumo. Yeah, and it's a big it's a big deal because it's the national sport of Japan, and uh, really, like the the professional sumo wrestler, there's even some I think pseudo religious components to it. Right. Um, and so in the mainland, it's uh, I think they're only limited to one foreigner per stable. That's all they can have, um, and it's a big deal because it, obviously sumo is growing in popularity across the world, and people want to compete and join to do it, but. Um, Mainly in, in Japan, it's still very much a, a kind of a Japanese-only sport. Now, on the island that I was on, on Kita Daito, there was Shomasan, the guy who uh, worked at my board of education, was really welcoming and wanted me to join the, uh, the team. But there was a counterpart to Shiroma. And I never think I ever actually learned this guy's name. We all just call him Shisa, because that was his nickname. <laughs> Shisa. Uh, you know, like little Okinawan. Yeah, his name was Shisa-san. And uh, he was this farmer, this sugarcane farmer, who in his heyday was like a legendary wrestler on the island. Hmm. He was really, really good. And, uh, but he was also like a very strong traditionalist. He didn't like that there was a foreigner on the team. Uh, he wouldn't even acknowledge me at first. So we'd have these big parties, these like good luck parties before a tournament or after a tournament. And if he came he would go up and cheers everyone. Then he'd get to me like individually. He'd go up to each person, give them a cheers, come pie. And when he got to me, he would just completely skip over, ignore me, go to the next one. Yeah. And so it's kind of an interesting story because it, it turns out for the better. Um, as I started winning and doing really well, especially in Edo, he couldn't really ignore me as much. Right. So he would very, he would very begrudgingly like give me a come pie. And, uh, you know, even initially when, when I was, when he would, be kind of rude or ignore me or, or make kind of disparaging comments. Um, Kinjo song, the, the coach I was talking about earlier, he was always so supportive. He'd be like, Oh, Andy, don't worry about it. You're with me. Don't, 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 don't let you sit on get to you. Um, hmm. but I'll never forget after the second Namboka Taikai, when I won the second time, uh, this was in the Edo at hmm. that point, he really couldn't ignore me. And, uh, so one night, I think it was like a week or two after the tournament, I hear a knock at my apartment door and then she's on. And he didn't say a word to me. He just grabbed me, 
Uh, like literally physically grabbed me, pulled me over this truck, put me in the truck, and we went down to one of the local snack bars, and we drank all night, and we didn't say a word to each other. Huh. So that was his way of apologizing. And uh, from that point on, it was all good. Wow. That's very yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, I, I've had, I, I guess, nothing quite that extreme, but, but at the places I worked out, there were there were similar issues, maybe to a lesser lesser degree, and... If you work out hard enough and long enough, usually these guys will will come around. Um, it's just unfortunate that it, it takes that much effort to, I don't know, change their mind or, or, or open, uh, get them more open to the outside world. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that also it's kind of a martial arts right now in Okinawa in Japan. Um, it's kind of a dying breed among Japanese kids. Hmm. Uh, like my nephews, they, my two Japanese nephews could care less about any martial arts. We went, uh, we went in January to visit them and visit my mother-in-law. And I was like, hey, you want to do some crowd? You want to pass it out? And the kids could go less. So, you know, here's, here's my remote control card. And then off, and we're like, okay. You know? Right. Uh, so I think that's part of it, too. I think there's kind of like a, hey, we should be seeing this kind of thing that we love and appreciate kind of dying out. We want to preserve it or keep it from dying out. Hey everyone, like the show? Enjoy hearing interviews with martial artists from around the world? Then share it with a friend, family member, co-worker, everyone at your dojo, your fellow karateka. You can find new episodes every Sunday at choptalk.podbean.com. That's choptalk.podbean.com. And don't forget to like the show on Facebook. Thanks. You said you were there for eight years. Eight years total? Was it 2004 yeah. to... 2005 to 2013. Okay, wow. So you were... I was there kind of in the, in the middle of that. I was there 2007 to 2010. And were you on Quito Daito? Am I saying it right? Quito Daito, yeah. Yeah, North Big East Island, Quito Daito. Oh, oh, now I got it. Okay, Quito Daito Island. So you, you were there the whole time or you moved at some point? So I was there for two years and then I had one year left on my visa. And I just, at that point, I've been dating my wife for a couple months. I said, okay, I've got a year left on my visa. You know, let's make it the most of this visa. Let's go to Tokyo and work for a year in Tokyo. And so I moved to Tokyo and lived in Tokyo from 2007 to 2009. Mm. Uh, wife came with me. And then in 2009, my wife's father got sick. And after living in extremely rural Kitadaika, the big city was just like sensory overload. So we oh, wanted to get back yeah. to Okinawa. Yeah. So, so we moved back to Okinawa and lived in Naha for about a year from 2009-2010. And I kept working in Naha from 2010 or so, 2011 or so, to 2013. I'm living in Yomitan, which is right next to Kadena Air Base. How did we not run into each other in 2009 and 2010? I, I have no idea. Um, but I, I suspect a lot of it was I, I was working long hours there at the Akaiwa yeah. that I worked at. We, I would get up, teach classes at 10 in the morning, have a two-hour break, and then teach until 9 o'clock at night. And then typically I would go over to Justice, which is like the local gym, and work out until like 10 or 11. 
uh, and then go pick up my wife from her bookstore job and, and go home and sleep. What, what part of Naha were you living in? Uh, we were living in um, Kohagura. Kohagura. What was that near? So it, uh, if you, um, let's see here. It was near the monorail. There's certainly a monorail exit that goes by there. Um, it's right next. It's You know where the river is? Sure. Near, yeah, it's right up from the river, right up from Monco Cohen. Man. Uh, okay, okay, yeah, 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 I got gotcha. you. Um, I, yeah, I took my, um, I was studying Japanese at a little, uh, language school right near that monorail station. The, I think the Oroku, the Oroku, uh, language uh, school. Um, I've seen that one. I, I saw it. I would, I, I would ride the monorail by it. Like, oh, maybe you should go there one of these days. And which Akaiwa were you teaching at? So I was at Family English School, SES. Uh, it's a small school, uh, also in Kuragura. It's uh, run by a couple, uh, an American uh, and a Japanese couple. And uh, they're really good people. I would recommend them to anyone who's looking to teach in Japan. Um, you know, I had good three years for them. And, and uh, yeah, I probably would have kept working there if I didn't have to come back to the United States. What was your visa situation at this time? Had You got married after... Uh... I guess after your or after or while you were in still in the JET program. So, was your were you able to stay because of the marriage visa, or did you get a work visa from this uh, English the Aikawa? So, I have a work visa from the Japanese government for for three years, and then I got a second work visa sponsorship for the for my job in Tokyo, and I think I even got a third one when I came back to Okinawa. Mm. Um, but, uh, towards the last couple of years there, then I moved over a spouse visa and, uh, it was surprisingly easy to get, like just rolled up one day with there. It was just, you know, found paperwork and got like pretty much same day. Okay. Um, but I think it, because I've been there already for like five or six years and I think, you know, I'm you know, obviously not a criminal paying my taxes, you know, doing the participating in society. So I think uh, it was pretty, pretty easy to get at that point. Right. Right. Okay. Man, it, we know a lot of the same people. Even when, when we uh, got on on Facebook, like we might like, have mutual friends that that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do. <laughs> uh, uh, small small circle in, in Naha and in, in Okinawa. But I'll tell you what. I mean, like when I was in in Yomitan, um, really, I enjoyed going up north. There are really yeah. beautiful nature spots up north that I don't think people from Naha ever really got out to that often, but. You go see the waterfalls, go, go check out some nature trails, all that good stuff. Yeah, and you know, you're far enough north at, in Yomitan, so when I would go snorkeling, I would either go, I could go south and I could get to the southern end of the island um, on my scooter, or I would go north, but I never got much farther north than Yomitan on my scooter. You know, it's an hour ride, and, um, you know, so you're far enough north that you can, and then the traffic dies down by the time you get to Yomitan. So you can get up to Nago and the northern end of the island that's less populated a lot quicker and easier. Uh, yeah, and I'll tell you, that northern part, like near Nago, it reminded me of Pizza Daito. It feels very much like an outer island when you're up there. Mm-hmm. So if you ever want to get the feel of an outer island, but you don't want to go on a ferry or go, go, you can just go up to Nago and it feels very, very similar. Okay, good. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to me about the, the tournaments that you guys were, were attending and, um, 
you know, and I also I was reading about some of this in um, in in Nagamini's book. Uh, o- Okinawan sumo was was very big, you know, uh, up to a hundred years ago. Really pre-war, it sounds like, even on mainland Okinawa, and there were. Uh, uh, tournaments associated with these festivals there's a lot of people very active in it and even historically um whereas karate you know there weren't as far as i can tell there weren't any there wasn't any kind of karate tournaments um that early on um you know things started coming around what in the 20s 30s and and now of course there are but and there were challenge matches, so people would fight each other, but there wasn't this big open tournament that was a major part of the culture like Okinawan sumo is, or was, or is. Let's say is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think part of that's because the techniques you learn in karate um, are very powerful. I mean, uh, Okinawan sumo is great, but like I said before, it's a martial game, not the martial art. If I was ever in trouble, I wouldn't. Oh, quick, let me grab your belt and do a technique that I learned in Kakariki, right? Right. Um, so I think that's part of it. I also think that um, there's probably a little bit more tradition and almost secrecy when it came to karate than it does with uh, Kakariki. Mm. Um, you know, so I think that's part of it as well. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert. Yeah. Uh, but that's just kind of what what my understanding of it is. Yeah. I mean, I know that. Um, Another kind of odd kind of karate kind 